the, the goal was the American Fender Stratocaster, but you know, no kid had a thousand dollars in his pocket. So we went and picked up the, the little nickel want ad pages. Are you, are you familiar with that? <laughs> I back in the day? Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Well, welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. My guest today is Matt Ackerman, and Matt is the owner of, well, Matt, you tell the people. I don't want to talk. You you, you introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. That's a, <laughs> I'm going to have to use an intro that quickly the next time we do our broadcast, because <laughs> that was, that was on point. Um... I, I own and operate Endorian Guitar Works out of, uh, well, it's not in the city of Olympia, Washington, but down here in, in Thurston County, Washington. Okay. Um, and yeah, so it's, um, it is uh, a business which started off as repairing guitars um, and then sort of went down the rabbit hole of, well, what else, what else can I do with this? Uh, what is my purpose and my calling around music? And uh, so we started offering like an educational component. The next place I went with this was a podcast or it wasn't a podcast. It's a, an Instagram broadcast uh, called Endorian Guitar Works Backstage. And the mission of that is um, a guided look at the life experiences and ways and means of a guitarist journey. So that's that's probably one of the most fun things that we do at Endorian Guitar Works is bring on hosts much like you do and, and talk about or guests much like you do and uh, talk about what they've been doing in the music industry and, and their challenges and their passions and the direction that they're going the whole point to meet other guitar players on their journey uh and help people take the next step whether they're like a seasoned pro or whether they're just considering picking up a, the guitar for the first time really trying to meet anyone and okay. walk with them so before you opened up in dorian what did you do what was your what was your journey to get here Man, I think I got lost on that map. Uh, I, you know, you had a I map. Mean, I never I, had a yeah, map. Well, you know, it was scribbled on the back of a of a Denny's napkin, right? <laughs> um, so I'd been a musician. I, I've been a guitar player for the better part of my life. I picked up the guitar when I was fourteen, and I knew that I wanted that I was a musician, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, but then at some point, I let um, probably one too many people talk to me about money and retirement and safe lifestyles and you know the big quote safe um so i became an office worker and um so i went to college and then came out of college and uh, almost immediately ended up working for the state of washington in various various roles at various agencies and most recently um I, I i just left my state job of four years at the washington state healthcare authority as a communications consultant and it was a great time um met a lot of wonderful people and had wonderful experiences but you know sort of the fast story through through covid through pandemic through all the experiences of realizing that life is short and we have one chance to do this i recognized it was time to reconnect with what really um you know fueled my fire which was music in one capacity or another okay so when you were 14, what was the, uh, what was the motivation? What, what, what inspired you to pick up a guitar? Well, I think the motivation, like what I, 
<laughs> first time I picked up a guitar was more like me hassling my parents into, I need a guitar. I need a guitar. I need a guitar. I think I was probably six or seven. Um, and, <laughs> and I heard, um, the Van Halen solo on Michael Jackson's beat it and, uh, broke tons of my dad's record needles, just sneaking down into the basement, listening to that guitar solo over and over and over again. And, <laughs> uh, my dad finally hooked me up with a guitar. And what that really means is we went out to the garage and grabbed a couple slabs of plywood and a two by four and nailed them together and, um, stretched some like literal string from one side of the two by four. <laughs> this thing was so incredibly heavy. And given that I was, you know, step forward a couple of days, spinning around in the basement, playing rock star. My mom ran an in-home daycare. I'm effectively swinging this <laughs> insanely heavy, uh, hazard around, um, and no, no one died, which is fantastic. But that, that, <laughs> that was, I think when I knew I wanted to play guitar, but there was no real guitar in my future. Um, and then, and then around the time, around the age of 14, uh, we were hanging out with, um, some other families that went to my parents' church. And one of them was like, was a guitar player. And, uh, he handed me this nylon string, um, classical. And I just started, he showed me two chords and I just started trying to string ideas together with these two chords. Uh, and it was on that and during that weekend where our family friend looked at my dad and mom and said you you probably ought to nurture this a little bit i think he he might actually know how to do this <laughs> so um got an acoustic and just sort of embarked down that was that was the beginning okay um and of course that was the year that i think that was about it was a couple of years after green day dookie came out and i remember hearing that tune when i was 12 years old painting the fence in the backyard hearing basket case for the first time come on over the radio and i was of course i was two years prior to actually owning a guitar but i that was just you know feeding it feeding it feeding it and um yeah i had gotten acoustic when i was in eighth grade and um then that just became that was my purpose if i wasn't at school i was at home playing guitar and sometimes I would fall asleep with it and then wake up, keep playing, wake up in the morning. Oh, I got a shower and get to school. <laughs> it was guitar. That was life. When did you uh, get your first, cause you know, green day doesn't really translate to the acoustic very well, I guess to me. I mean, it doesn't, me. it doesn't, but so, I didn't stop. You just, you just play. <laughs> right. But when did, when did you get your first electric and what it was it? It wasn't long. It wasn't long after that. Um, yeah. I remember we picked up, God, because at that point in time, there wasn't, I mean, you had to have money, uh, you know, if, of course the, the goal was the American Fender Stratocaster, but uh, you know, no kid had a thousand dollars in his pocket. So we went and picked up the, the little nickel want ad pages. Are you, are you familiar with that? <laughs> yeah, right back I, in the day? I was, yes. Picked up the little nickel want ad pages and just looked for something that was, you know, in my budget of mowing lawns, um, and found a. For $75, this um, Harmony Electric. And for any listeners who, some of them are probably have some experience with Harmony, but Harmony was an interesting brand. It, they they started off as sort of a boutique brand, and then they quickly became a JCPenney catalog brand. And now they're back to the boutique uh, side of things, producing some fairly high-end stuff. If you walk into Chicago Music Exchange, they have an entire wall of Harmony, and the guitars start around like two grand. Okay, um, but but this guitar uh, was more of the J.C. Penny caliber, <laughs> and uh, um, it came with a guitar amplifier, which was powered by I think like 
six D batteries, um, <laughs> but it was an electric guitar and that's, that's all I cared about. And that was going to, that was going to put me in the pocket and I was going to learn how to play. Um, so I spent $75 on that. My dad and I hopped in the car. We lived in Renton, Washington effectively and drove over to the neighboring town of Issaquah and, uh, picked it up from this kid who was trying to quote unquote save for a, a real electric guitar should have been a tip off, but I wanted an electric. So I bought it. And, uh, I remember upon leaving his apartment, he said, all right, now we can afford pizza tonight. And my dad just, I didn't really understand how that was a really meaningful statement. Like if you're going to save for something, actually save for it. But I bought a guitar and he was getting pizza. Uh, but that was my first electric. Okay. All right. And how was that guitar? I was lucky enough to find a friend who wanted to trade. <laughs> <laughs> Were you still friends after the trade? Yeah, he wasn't as passionate in playing as I was. He had one of those three-quarter sized electrics that was actually built very well. Okay. And I had a full-sized electric that didn't play. I was more concerned about being able to play the instrument, and he wanted something that looked more normal when he held it. Um, and so I guess it was an equitable trade, given the motivation. But yeah, so guitar number two was this thing called a gremlin. And I played that until I could afford a Mexican Squire Stratocaster. One pickup, a volume control, and it got the job done. Okay. Have you ever in your journey gotten the American-made Strat? I did not purchase an American-made Strat. I decided to make my own. Um, okay. So, like, you know, um, I I don't know. I, I, I like building guitars now. So um, I could go out and get one, but I like the one I built better. So I'm happy okay. with it. Okay. <laughs> So middle school, 14, 15, 16 years of age, you got your first mm -hmm. electric, then you got a three-quarter size electric that you could actually play. <laughs> did you do did you do the whole garage band thing? Were you or were you just a kid that sat in your room and, and practiced all the time? It was a little bit of both. Um I, I spent most of my time practicing in the bedroom. Um what stopped me from doing the full on garage band for a while is just simply not having an amp that was like loud enough to compete. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but eventually, uh, you, you find, you hang out with the right people, you meet the right people and you realize that sometimes there's just gear left over at the house and not having the right gear is not necessarily a, a barrier to, to playing music. So I started, um, sp spending a lot of time with, uh, the really good high school drummer and we've become really good friends and still are to this day. Um, played, yeah, I did some garage band type stuff and then actually ended up spending a couple of years in high school jazz band with each other, uh, which was an amazing opportunity for growth and really kind of challenging what you thought you, what you challenging, what you thought you wanted to be as a musician and where you were going to hone those skills. But playing behind a big band really affords you the opportunity of getting better fast. <laughs> So we did when a lot of that. When you were playing in high school jazz band, mm -hmm. where were you getting your inspiration from in, in that in that arena? What sort of what jazz players were you listening to that were inspiring? I probably should have done more listening to jazz. I never really felt like my jazz vocabulary was pushing me. It was just knowing that you know I had a job to do, and that was to support you know to to be part of the rhythm section. Mm -hmm. um, I actually was, I think my biggest i wouldn't say he was uh an, an inspiration because he wasn't or i was into buddy rich you know we okay. everything that we were doing was was 
really, really intense, powerful driven jazz. And I was just a guitar player and I didn't really, I wasn't really in love with jazz music. I just loved to play it. I, I really didn't. I think at the time I was really just trying to be involved rather than carve out what I wanted to do. So jazz band, I knew like it was important to me to be part of the jazz band because I was surrounded by, surrounded by incredibly talented musicians. Um, but it wasn't really jazz that they called to me. I was always going to be a rock and a blues player. So if I was, you know, if I was listening to jazz, I was, I was listening to Buddy Rich. Okay. And where'd you go to high school? I went to Kent Ridge High School. Okay. okay. Yeah. They right had a pretty good jazz program, Hill. right? They did. It was yeah. under the direction of, of Paul Harshman, who is now oh. in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I figured you might know that name. <laughs> His, uh... <laughs> So you understand the um, you understand the oh yes no the, the expectation to grow and, and yeah, be incredibly his, good. <laughs> his brother Chris mm-hmm. had the dorm room next to me my freshman year, and as I understand it, Paul Harshman still hold. I, I think he was a hell of a runner. Um, yes, he, I, I think he still holds some track and uh, a track record at Central to this day. The three Harshman brothers were mm-hmm. not normal. They were. They were superhumans. They they all three had these larger than life personalities. I'm a I, I'm a kid, so I went to my first year at Central was 1980. To give you perspective, mm-hmm. okay. I grew up listening to 70s rock and roll, 60s and 70s rock and roll. And Harshman, he's listening to jazz music. Never heard any of this stuff before, right? And I'm like, what right. is this stuff? And just, but over time because I had no choice but to listen to, because he played louder than I could play my stereo. Um, and his one roommate was really into the Beatles. So um, there was this, they were just an interesting trio of brothers. Let's just put it that way. Super outgoing, super big personalities. Um, Yeah, that's funny that you say that name. And like I said, before we hit record, all roads seem to lead back to Central in some capacity. Yeah, they, they really do. Um auditioning for auditioning for Paul was, and I think what well, I'm 40 now. So it was 20 some years ago. Um, it was, <laughs> it was a real experience. Um, the first year, the first year I auditioned, I guess it was my, how did they do high school? Well, we did, we started high school in the building a year after high school actually started. So it was 10th grade. So 10th grade, um, I wanted to audition for jazz band and he wasn't, he wasn't having it. Um, I don't really remember the reasons, but I think it had something to do with one. I wasn't good enough. And two, I wasn't playing in the other band and it, you know, I needed to, I needed to earn some of this cred before I could walk into the school and audition for this band. So I was not allowed to. And I spent the next year, um, my goal was to be good enough to walk into those auditions and land it. And no one was going to tell me that I wasn't going to be good enough, regardless of what kind of music I was inspired by. Mm-hmm. Um, and so junior year of high school, my God, I can't believe we're rehashing these memories. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, I walked in and not, and I had no idea what to expect. Um, there were two guitar players, um, me and a, a guy who absolutely loved to death. Haven't seen him since high school, uh, but great deal of respect for this kid named Jeff. And um, we, I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I, now I know what Harshman was doing and he was, he had two very, very good kid guitar players 
at his disposal and he was going to not necessarily like pit us against each other, but he knew that we would use that competitive nature to, to drive each other up. And I won't say this officially, but I don't, I don't think he really wanted a guitar player in the jazz band, but if he was going to have one, he might as well have two that are pushing each other to be the best that they can be. And so he actually sat two guitar players in the jazz band that year. It was, which, which, you know, in a high school jazz band, that's not, Un, unheard of mm-hmm. but it was unheard of for for paul harshman okay uh so so he and i so jeff and i um pushed each other the entire junior year uh which you know culminated in like, the last the last uh concert of the year he actually let us do like a guitar battle guitar solo over <laughs> some thad jones funk um and i think i i think that year of my life really um, formed the expectations that I would have for myself and that level of perfectionism that I was going to take in everything that I ever attempted to do in my life, which is, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but it is, it is what it is. And I will always remember that year as the year that I knew that I had to bring my best to anything that I did. Okay. Well, what happened, what happened senior year? Were you in jazz band your senior year as well? <laughs> I was. Senior year, it all fell apart uh, because <laughs> a lot of the seniors, you know, that, that guitar, the, the band from the previous year um, was mainly seniors. So they had all graduated and it was just sort of a, a thing of timing. Um, the jazz band that year was dominated by incoming sophomore. Or, yeah, sophomores because freshmen were actually in a, a different building in that structure. They were in junior high. Um, so it was effectively like a a jazz band of, of 10th graders, um, and a brand new and a brand new jazz director because Paul had decided to switch districts. Uh, so it, (laughs) it was not a good year. Uh, I was frustrated, but you know, any 18 year old does not understand necessarily that you're going to have to push yourself. Sometimes you have to make the best of what you have on it. But I don't think I was mature enough at the time to understand. Yeah, that. I'll see. Most most of us at eighteen weren't. So We're probably not. Yeah. So I and we know, or at least I know, that you ended up at Central because I did all roads lead to Central. I did. Yep. Uh, what was your What was your musical experience like at Central? It was great. Um, you know, I chose. I looked at a couple different universities in in washington and it was it was a weird experience like even trying to figure out where i wanted to go to school for music um i did not look at the university of washington because i didn't think i needed to get further away um i looked at washington state university and they wanted to throw money at me and train me to be a drummer which i didn't get like they didn't have a guitar program at the time and they were building an audio production studio but they openly said we're not going to have curriculum for this for another two years so i was like well this this just feels weird um i checked out western washington university whose jazz program was under the direction of um chuck israels who's just you know incredible but i think he was a little strong for my personality at the time and i was well i was really on the defense by the time i went and met with Dr. Peter Grease at, at Central. And when I walked in to go meet him before I even auditioned, um, he was so incredibly welcoming and accepting and just wanted to meet me as a person before we even talked about music. And that was what I think I needed. That was the instant, that was the moment that I knew that 
if they would have me that that's where I was going to go because I needed this. I needed that component Mm -hmm. at that time. And, um, so I, I did my requisite, uh, freshman, you know, music basics classes. I I was aiming for a major, uh, I ended up only getting a minor because I made a switch into communications. Um, but you know, I took the theory classes and the class piano classes and, oh, I don't even remember half of them. Um, but I do remember, I do remember all the, all the classes that were taught by Dr. Grease because he, um, made, he made learning music theory just, it, it was so incredibly exciting to understand the physics of sound and the mathematics of sound and, and, and what there was hidden in the notes that you wouldn't necessarily know was there. Um, and it, it made it, it was like for a guy, for a guy like me who also likes science fictions, like Star Trek and Star Wars and all this kind of stuff. Like I want to tease everything apart and understand how something works to walk into a room where the, for the first time somebody says, all right, I want absolute silence. And they open up this Bossendorfer grand piano and just smack down on the lowest key on the piano and just insist on silence as that fundamental note separates into 10, 12, 24, all these different, like a choir of notes all emanating from the same fundamental note and then explaining how this works. That was such an incredible experience. And that, that, um, that style of learning was, was prevalent with every instructor that was there. Um, when I was in jazz band two, uh, under Gary Williams, he had that same encouraging nature to, to get me to, to get out of the box of just the typical big band guitar player. Um, I had sort of been conditioned to you stay over there, you stay in your lane (laughs) and you make sure there's a feel I'll give, I'll let you know when I want to hear from you. Mm -hmm. But when I was playing with Gary, he said, you're part of this. I want to hear what your ideas are. And that was, um, that was important. I think, I think, I think that helped sort of lend balance to the, to the other experience. (laughs) So with Gary, did you ever hear him play any Rush? I heard, I don't there may have been a rush cover when I heard him play with his band ecstasy and numbers, but I did not explicitly hear him play rush. Yeah. He was, uh, it was frightening listening to him play. Yeah. Um, in, in, in a good way, you know, oh, um, yeah. it was, he was, it was, he was an amazing drummer. Um, when I, so I, I played under Gary for my freshman year. And then as I mentioned, I, I, sort of made a move into the communications land. And I didn't see Gary again until I moved down to Olympia, Washington. And I didn't know I was going to see Gary, but down in Olympia, they have this uh, festival two times a year. They have arts walk and it happens in the spring and in the fall. Um, And I just started this job. I've clearly fast forwarded a bit, but I just started this job and I didn't know anybody. And my coworker said, Hey, are you going to head down to arts walk? There's this, there's this trio. I want to see there's this, the band's got this amazing drummer. This coworker happened to be a drummer and he really wanted to see this drummer. I said, yeah, sure. Let's, let's go. <laughs> and we walked into this, uh, little store that sells tea and there was this jazz trio set up and lo and behold, it was Gary and Gary. I hadn't seen, you know, 
Last time I saw him was in Ellensburg, Washington. Here he is down in Olympia. He had moved to Bremerton to teach. Uh, so he he was down in Olympia quite frequently. And I hadn't seen him for probably eight years and walked right up to him. And he struggled with my name, but he absolutely knew who I was. And we caught up and he, he was such an amazing man. Yeah, he was. So he was, yeah, he was the same, same year at Central that I was. So, um kind of referencing back to the whole Harshman thing. Yeah. Uh, all these loops that connect back. So, so after central, you started doing the office worker gig. Cause you, like, I you, built you to, to, to <laughs> paraphrase people got in your head and told you you needed a job with, with retirement. Uh, I grew up with that same, um, that same advice coming to me too. is like, you know, save 10% of what you make work for a yeah. union job and retire. Yeah. Um, tried to follow that i was the i was a round peg in a square hole that was just you know I, I ended up needing to do what i do so after college were you were you were you still playing guitar did you did you put it down for an, a period of time or directly after college no i i left the rock band that i had started in college because i knew that i was coming back over to the west side of the mountains um and so there was a there was a departure um not like some big dramatic VH1 behind the music departure, but you know, I, I said goodbye and said, Hey, you know, this, this isn't goodbye. It's see you later. Uh, but I came, I came back over. Yeah. Came back over to the other side of the mountains and, and tried, you know, at the time there was no, I don't even remember if we had MySpace yet, but there was Craigslist and, um, you know, it, it felt weird to be surfing Craigslist to try to find somebody. You didn't really know what you were going to end up with. And I, I found a couple of musicians that, you know, tried to try them on like shoes and it just wasn't really happening. So I just kept playing and kept playing. And then as luck would have it, um, several of the members of my band decided that they were done with Ellensburg and they were going to move back to the Seattle area. So we, we kind of put the band back together with a slightly different lineup and continued to play from early 2005 to 2009 or so. Um, and what was the name of that uh, band? That band was uh, named Northwater. It was named after North Water Street in Ellensburg, Washington, where the where the jam space was. Um, and um, <laughs> oh no, okay, let's hear is the Dairy Gold Building, right? <laughs> oh, see, so so much changed over there. That area of mm -hmm. town back when I was there, we called it Dogtown. Yeah, and um, there was nothing going on over there. And now when you drive through Ellensburg, it's kind of frightening, but Northwater. Okay. That was, sorry. That made me, yeah. That made me Dogtown, Dogtown was still on the other side of the, um, this was a lot closer to downtown. It was, it, yeah. I think it was an old, an old Elks building, but like if you're heading down main street, like you're going to the palace cafe, but you head, I guess it's to the West. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's where water. Yeah. And there's this old building that it wasn't quite where I think the dairy gold building was in Dogtown. And that was a, that was a trip. Uh, but, the old um, Elks is now the uh, Hotel Windrow. I think they can move yeah. that into a, a nice hotel. And I don't, you know, someone's going to fact check me listening to this. Oh, yeah, so I, I don't know. know that it was the, the Elks, but it was, it was, I, I thought it was like an old, um, what do you call those Elks, Eagles, the, the fraternal uh, organization, fraternal organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought it was one of those that, that nothing was going on. So the landlord basically like loaned out keys and rooms and right said here um so that's how that that's how that band got its name and and then we played in seattle quite a bit and and then as many bands do um 
there are certain substance abuse issues with certain members and it just fell apart. Okay. Um, but that's so what, okay because at the time I was having a kid, so I needed to be dad. <laughs> so what type of uh, musical influence was that band? That was very, very tool heavy tool. Yeah. And um, if you can imagine a blend between tool and Chevelle, um, that was, that was Northwater. Okay. All right. Yeah. What happened after that? You had a kid, so dad, dad mode, but you're still playing guitar, right? You, you didn't. Yeah. I, I never stopped playing guitar until probably. And when I say probably like there, there was an acknowledgement in later in life that I had stopped and didn't realize I had stopped, but I, I continued with the intention of playing until about 2016. I played in some various side projects. I've, did a lot with um, a, lo- a local Olympia theater because I was not successful in putting any bands together. So I hooked up with um, a theater troupe who was interested in doing, well, at first there wasn't guitar. They were like, do you, are you interested in doing sound design? So I did some sound design for some productions. And then they said, we want to step this up a little bit. We want to do this music. We did Cannibal the Musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to have it backed we want live music for this so would you be interested in trying that hat on i said yeah (laughs) so we formed this um little one two three uh this three piece uh playing playing the the soundtrack to cannibal while also running sound for cannibal while the actors were on stage and i did a lot of that type of work to scratch the musical itch um between 2010 and and on and, um, yeah, that's a wild experience, by the way. Like if you, if any theater group ever comes up to you as a musician and says, are you interested in doing a musical? Just don't even, yes, is your answer. Just give it a try. <laughs> it's fun. Well, elaborate on that. Why, why, why do you, why do you feel so strongly about that? Well, it's a whole different experience. You know, like I think a lot of people will lump musicians and actors in the same bucket of artists and just say that they're all the same type of people, but it's, it's, they're not. And it, it, it stretches you to, to figure out how to do what you want, what you want to happen. So there's like this first phase of, of, of musical maturity where it's like, you realize that when you're trying to make music, you're not just trying to be self-serving, but you want to serve the music. But when you're doing musical theater, you have to serve the music. So the music can serve the actors. Okay. And there's a whole different, you know, there's a whole different level and then the relationships that go along with it and, you know, just every, what it takes to conceptualize, to go from a, a reading of a play to strike after the last show. Um, it is, I mean, it's an emotional mess of a roller coaster, but it's all very worth it. Okay. And those friendships go forever. All right. That's, that's very cool. Let's uh, let's talk about your Endorian. Sure. First off, how'd you come up with the name? <laughs> um. So yeah, people have asked me if it's a if it's a Star Wars copy, and obviously I'm going to answer no. Um. <laughs> what well, we moved out to this house in 20. I you can't you know no one in the podcast can see the house, but I moved out with my wife and children to this property in uh, early 2018. And the first thing that we said is that, Oh my God, it looks like we just moved to Endor. Um, We are just in the trees and it kind of became our joke. Okay. Um, 
And, but officially I will say it's a nod to the Dorian mode <laughs> of the major scale. Okay. Um, yeah, we don't, you know, there, there's nothing, there's nothing Star Wars about the brand other than it, it sounds like <laughs> okay. we might live on Endor. Yeah. All right. What, what was your motivation to start offering guitar repair services? That was absolutely a result of kind of losing my mind in the, um, I shouldn't laugh. In sorry. The ice. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> it, it's like, it's such a common story at this time. And like, don't get me wrong. Like I was, I was way more guarded about my, my, um, mental health. I think when I was, you know, officially working for people that could, you know, make recommendations, you know, like if you're working for the government and someone gets the idea that they think that you're not okay, then they start going to your boss and they start going to the employee resource center and start saying, I'm worried about this guy, you know, but everyone was, everyone was struggling. Well, not everyone. I mean, I was always kind of envious of those, um, introverts without children who had long commutes because for them it was a par- it was a paradise you know they didn't have to see people they didn't have to try to homeschool their children while they were also working and they didn't put gas in their car anymore so for them it was a vacation and they got you know paid for it and i was a naturally extroverted creative with three kids at home the bad internet connection um trying to wear too many hats and i was really self-destructive you know and um and trying to trying to figure out was it still worth like i was really struggling just being here and um watching me you know snapping at my kids who just you know think it's so cool to have dad working at the table and i'm more focused on whether i'm going to get a press release written in time um than i am in you know caring about my children's mental health and all at the same time i'm not doing anything that's relevant to me in the soul. And so July of 2021 and, you know, sort of tangentially, but directly, I guess directly related, I had not realized that for so many people by July of 2021, this whole concept of isolation had like, had gone away. Like so many people had gone back to the office, had their lives had really gone back to normal. They just had to wear a mask occasionally. But if you worked for the state of Washington, we were still locked down. There was still an expectation that, you know, you work from home. Um, daycares were sending your kids home. If somebody had a sniffle three blocks away, it was, we were sort of living in a pseudo, a pseudo lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was weird because I'd have friends that didn't understand why it was so hard until they would like talk with me and realize I had no idea that you were still in your basement all the time. Like, yeah, I don't have a choice. And so that's a long walk to get to around July. I just had to find a way to stay relevant and, and, and find something that, uh, kept me kept me whole on the inside and i said well if i'm not performing music and there's nowhere to perform music and there's all these instagram guitar players out there there's still people playing instruments and i've always been a person who wanted to take things apart and work on things and i've always worked on my own guitars so why don't i just go out there and (laughs) plant my flag and say this is what i do um and so that's what i started doing i made the shirts i made the web page i 
stood firm in my belief that I can do this just as well as the next guy. And um, if I build it, they will come, you know, as the great field of dreams quote goes. And they, they, uh, they came slowly, but they did. And fast forward to about March of 2022, I recognized that I had all these ideas. By this point, we had already launched the podcast in addition to me repairing guitars. And I said that I'm, I've got this idea that I'm, I'm still trying to be super dad. I'm still trying to work in a remote environment. And I've got this business on the side that I'm only feeding with crumbs, like with what's left over. Like I was complaining about not having enough energy before. And now I'm like finding more energy to give this. What, what in the hell could possibly happen if I just gave it everything? Um, so I, I took the leap and, um, gave, gave notice and decided, well, I mean, there were some long conversations with my spouse to make sure, can we do this? Um, (laughs) what's the budget going to look like, but we found a way. Um, so yeah, no, I'm doing this full time. How's that feel? It's scary as hell. Excuse me. I don't know. Uh, I'll give you the G rated version too. (laughs) Uh, You know, that's PG. We're good. We're good. It's, it's, um, it's absolutely terrifying, but the fact of the matter is it is it became more terrifying to sit with the idea of continuing to sit still than it was to take a risk that may or may not work out. And, um, you know, people have asked me like, well, what's your plan B? And like, I don't like, there are people that say, don't think about plan B because you're going to be unsuccessful. If you think about plan B, I'm sort of a hybrid. I think I wrote, I wrote plan B down on a piece of paper and locked it up and I'm not going to think about it. Okay. (laughs) You know, um, yeah, I'm fully committed and it's just, it, it's, it feels terrifying, but it also, for the first time I'm realizing that I am literally working for myself. And that's a weird thing. There's so many entrepreneurs out there that this is, this is, this is life. This is what you do if you want to make a living. But you know, for the first time I'm not, I'm not getting, I don't have a to-do list that's effectively governed by other people by my customers. I have a to-do list that's governed by what I want to achieve by my direction. I've got this giant whiteboard of I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, this to do that. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I told my friend, I said, I don't want this to feel like a midlife crisis. And he said to me, he's like, dude, it is a midlife crisis. There's nothing wrong with a midlife crisis. It's how you react to a midlife crisis. You're going to go out and have an affair and buy a Corvette or are you going to do something that's going to push you forward and make you great? Like, oh, okay, fine. So it's a midlife crisis. I'm just handling it well. <laughs> to me, the energy it takes to not know is more exhausting than the energy of knowing of a success or failure. And so I applaud you for jumping, jumping in. Um, I, I don't remember when I had become an individual that was satisfied with this idea of, um, starting a 30 year career and just kind of staying put and then waiting for retirement. Um, because you're completely betting on the fact that quite honestly, that you're going to get there. Um, and I have seen, and this is where it gets a little dark, you know, but I have seen more than my fair share of individuals not make it to the age of retirement. And what's even more heartbreaking are those that make it to retirement and somehow, end up leaving us a year or two after they're retired. And this, um, 
the notion that you, you should you should pay your dues and then have fun it just doesn't sit well with me i think you should be having fun while you're paying your dues you know it's going to be hard it's going to be hard but and you know i'm i'm really i'm encouraged to know that there's a lot of people oh, that are out there that figured that out a lot sooner than i did uh, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> you don't need to course correct along the way so that's what i did 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 you know of a guy in ellensburg um named frank johnson was a local guy, bass player. I don't think so. I know so Johnny. He, <laughs> Frank, um, Frank played in a band with a friend of mine. Um, and he was a tile setter on this. You know, that's, that right. was his day job. He set tile. Well, he finally retired at like 70 years of age. Okay. Yep. Okay. Think about tile setting, getting up and down. That's hard on the body, knees, bad things, all this stuff. Right. Yep. He retired and he went on a trip down to the Southwest, Arizona, New Mexico, and was killed in a car wreck. Yeah. Right after retirement. You know, you know, you don't know. No, you don't know. No. Yeah. There is no, there is no guarantee that your golden years will be golden um, or that you'll have them. So I think, I think you're, once again, kudos to you for jumping in and doing this. What sort of services are you providing? And um, yeah, I've got I've got some questions about that. I know nothing next to nothing about guitars. They have seventeen strings, right? Um, <laughs> so what what sort of services are you providing at this time? You know, when I started off, it was uh, I, I was I was dipping my toes in, you know, um, slowly. So. I would say that most people come to me for um, they've got a guitar and it's just not playing quite right. It might need a setup. It might just maybe they want new pickups or new switches. Sometimes you've got old dirty guitars that are just dusty and need to be, you know, um, you know, spit polished and shined up. Right. Not really. But mm -hmm. um, and and then there have been some more <clears throat> complex, more um, repairs that are more deserving of a, of a true luthier, which has caused me to sort of like go back to school. I'm, I did not think that the number of people that have come to me and say, Hey, I need to, I would, I would like, um, to have my guitar refretted. I didn't think that there was going to be that, um, <clears throat> that kind of demand. So that is currently what I'm, one of the things that I'm working on getting better at right now, because I wouldn't feel good taking a customer's guitar right now and refretting a, 30 year old Gibson Les Paul, um, until I'm hundred percent satisfied. I just didn't see the demand there is. Um, but I think what you can get from that is that I, I'm not going to take a job if it's not, if I can't give you hundred percent, but yeah, mainly I mainly I touch electric guitars and, um, and we, you know, do custom pickups. What kind of sound are you looking for? It's a real cons uh, consultative process as well. Like some people have a guitar that they want. They really, they, they really love the look of this guitar. Actually, I had a customer call me the other day. He was super stoked about this guitar. He just ordered it from Texas. He is, he bought it specifically for the aesthetic um, and some certain other elements. And he's like, but I hate the way it's wired and I do not like the electronics. Can you do this for me? Absolutely. Bring it over. Let's talk. Um, and, uh, so we're going to basically hot rod the entire thing and give it new guts and set it up and make it a heavy metal guitarist dream. Um, okay. and then I dove into starting to, um, uh, build my own. So that's, 
that's something that's coming in 2022 and 2023 is I've actually got I'm building a line of electrics, uh, one primarily with myself, uh, one line with my daughter who has expressed interest in showing some artistic creativity. And so she's actually going to be painting some of these. And then one okay. line with a local artist who are going to effectively do uh, the same type of thing. Um, I don't have a storefront, so he is going to lend his time and energy to basically do a line dedicated to his artistic brand. Um, and now then I'm going to build the guitars. He's painting the guitars and then we'll be selling them out of his shop. Okay. So, All right. yeah. What would be the so a customer calls you up? Mm -hmm. What would be the dream job? They've got a fill in the blank guitar, you know, whether it's a, let's say, a, a 57 Fender Telecaster or whatever. You, right. you get to, you, you fill it in and they want X done to it. What would that look like for you right now? I th I don't want to avoid your question, but honestly, I think it's it's less the job and more the repeated business. When when somebody okay. like it, it it the answer to that is more sort of like based in the question itself, and that's that if somebody has called me up with a fifty seven and said, I want you to be the one to work on it. It doesn't matter if they just need a truss rod adjustment or you know a, a, a fret and dress or I need a I need a new pickup installed. It's the fact that there's that element of trust that's already there and it's still an opportunity to show that you're the best. Um, okay. and, but I guess if it was, if there was really a dream job, if, if, if you were to say, what is the, well, dream what's the Holy grail of a guitar? The Holy, the holy grail is if somebody says, Hey, I'm going on a, a 10 week tour and I need a tech to go with me and I figure out a way to make it work. And I go on the road. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Yeah. If somebody comes to you and says like, you know, I can go buy a, a Fender Telecaster or I, or I can buy this thin line. Like right now I'm building a thin line with my daughter and that means that I'm doing something right. You know, I mean, it, not, not just what's expected, but it's, it's a really weird, like intimate connection to be creating an instrument. Like not every instrument's the same. You go pick up three Les Pauls off the stand. They're all going to feel different. And if somebody is, if somebody is coming to you to have you do the right work, like so much, so much setup work is honestly like, and someone's going to shoot me for saying this, but so much setup work is guesswork, right? Like I can set it up by the numbers and I can set it up like perfectly, but I also want to know how you play. I want to, I, every time a customer comes over and drops off a guitar, the first thing I do, not the first thing, but after they tell me what they want, we have our consult and we talk. I said, before you leave, I want to watch you play for a few minutes. Because I want to figure out their style. I want to see how hard are you attacking the strings. I want, are you more of a finger style? Are you a hybrid picker? Are you like what kind of pick are you using? Because the way I set a guitar up, I'm going to first start with by the numbers, and then I'm going to play it, and I'm going to replicate your playing while I'm playing the instrument. And if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do by the numbers, I'm going to tweak it a little bit so when you pick it up it plays exactly the way you want to play it in the style that you're playing it. So that sort of intimate connection between I'm delivering something to you that you're supposed to now dump your soul into in order to create art. That's wild to me. And that is kind of the dream. Like that almost makes every job the dream job because you get to send another person off to go make art and be inspired 
with whatever tool they have, you know, whether, yeah. Very cool. You also teach classes, right? You're also teaching guitar lessons. I am open for guitar lessons. I actually don't have many students right now. I have taught 10 to 15 students in the past, but right now I think people are, it's a weird environment right now. A lot of people are doing a lot of home learning or, or, or independent learning. Mm-hmm. And there's folks that are um, still only wanting um, remote lessons and some people that are insisting on in-person lessons. And it's like trying to find that, trying to find that fit. Um and it's also not the I'm putting more I'm putting more effort into the uh into the physical side of the business right now than the lesson side. Mm-hmm. But I am absolutely enrolling students at this time. All right. Yeah. You mentioned you're gonna be creating, you know, th- what we'll call three lines of guitars over the next twelve months or so. In t- yeah. the rest of twenty twenty two and twenty three. What else is the future look like? Not trying to put you on the spot and say, you know, what's the secret plan, but what? <laughs> no, it's okay. What? Uh, I mean, do you want a storefront? You mentioned you don't. You don't have a storefront. Do you? Do you? Does that inspire you, or is that a negative to you? Oh no, the storefront is. I, I would love to have a storefront, and I I know exactly where I want it. Um, it's just simply a matter of. That's a lot of you know. Right now, I'm still building the business up to just you know, recover the revenue of quitting a day job. Mm -hmm. Um, you've got to be able to (laughs) afford the, (laughs) afford the space. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, no, I, I would love that if, if in the next 18 months, uh, 18 to 24 months, I had a storefront up in our local area here. Um, I, I see that as a, as a huge strategy. Um, and that's sort of a long story based on the geography of the area and where people are, where people live around here and where they're currently taking their guitars, which for a lot of the people that live on highway 101 is, um, is a, is a long distance in one direction or another. And I, and I think that I'm sort of in the pocket that could be uh, very successful with that. And more immediately, I'm really loving what we're doing. And I say we here, and this is really the we element. Um, my, the Instagram broadcast, and right now it's on Instagram, but platforms could change. But we do Endorian Guitar Works backstage, and that's, I mentioned that earlier, I think. But that's mm-hmm. the uh, the guided look at the life experiences and ways and means of the guitarist journey. And I do that podcast with um, my friend and former bandmate, Brian McCoy, who uh, could not be here today. But that is, that is the collaborative baby, um, and that is... And it's a lot like this, but we do it. It's a live show and we live stream it over Instagram. And we sometimes it's as simple as let's do a tech show. And we're going to I'll, I'll base a lot of the content on questions that have come to me. Um, like, how do I I want to wire my guitar? I'm having trouble. Can you show me how to do this? Um, so we'll do tech shows. We're all actually like on the counter in front of me, I'll, I'll dual cam. So one, you can see us and two, you can see the guitar and then I'll actually go through and re- like rewire a guitar. And we've also have had live performances by bands, um, that we remote in and then push it out to Instagram or we just do interviews and we've done some really great shows and we have more on the horizon over the next several months. And that is one of the things that I'm super excited about seeing what we, what we can do with this. That is, of course, has its own challenges. Like, what is the best? What is the best format? What's the way to best way to engage people? What's the best time? Where is your audience? <laughs> if your audience is in England, um, 
you know, going on at 7.30 p.m. Pacific is problematic. But yeah, enduring guitar work state, uh, backstage is, is, a, is a blast and it's um, resulted in us meeting a lot of great people too and um, forming a lot of, a lot of good networking and a lot of good professional relationships around that too. So. Okay. So now we're going to ask you some, these are, by the way, any of your answers are perfectly okay. So there's no right sure. or wrong answer here. Sure. Uh, you get to play one guitar for the rest of your life. What would it be? One guitar for the rest of my life. I can't even pick any of the guitars that I have in the house. Um, I know it's an impossible question, but it is play, an impossible question. Along. I'm going to, <laughs> yep, I'm going to play along, and and Jimmy Vaughn is going to give me his brother's uh, number one. <laughs> okay. I would, yeah, okay. I would, I would absolutely take Stevie's number one. Okay. That actually I'd find put, a way to make it work. That, that, that <laughs> plays into question number two, which is uh, if you could meet any guitar player, dead or alive, who would you want to meet and why? That's actually going to be a toss-up between Stevie Ray Vaughan and Kurt Cobain. Um, so why? Why? Well, Stevie Ray Vaughan, because obviously I consider him, as do many, one of the one of the best guitar players that ever graced the planet and held the instrument um more than his music i also you know he went he went through certain um personal struggles mm -hmm. that um that he somehow was able to go into the go into the darkness and and come out again and not just come out better for himself but it was able to channel that like not in not just into the notes on the guitar but um the message you know that he was singing about and even in the concerts about like when he would just make remarks and speaking to the audience and everything he did was about evangelizing for hope okay. um, and for, and for taking care of people. And, and Kurt Cobain, you know, like having spent so much time in, in Washington, I struggle with living in Western Washington and that's not a dish, you know, people that love it here. That's great. I struggle with the gray. Um, but one of the things that always gives me, if I, if I'm really, really, really deep down in my funk, and saying, why am I here? Like, why can't I be somewhere sunny? Um, somewhere that brings me, like, I wake up joyous. I remember things like one of Kurt Cobain's first, one of Nirvana's first gigs, as with the band as we know it, was in Rignall Hall, which is less than two miles from my house on the road that I live on. You know, I can, I can literally walk out into the road in front of my mailbox and I can say, I'm sharing space here with somebody who also did it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a certain connection there. And I think, you know, obviously millions of people would say they have that connection too. So I don't know what it is, but I, I just feel like if I could sit down and, and, and have a, have a coffee with, with Kurt, um, I might see a little clearly, a little more clearly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for uh, helping with an easy transition for me. You said coffee with Kurt. So I always yeah, ask sure. everybody about coffee. Um, yeah. Where, where do you like to go for coffee in the greater Olympia area? Lately I've been, uh, I, I like to go to my kitchen. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, Olympia coffee roasters is, is pretty awesome. They're, they're downtown on, uh, what road is that? 
fourth yep. right across from city hall and uh they have a roast called um big truck uh-huh which is pre- pretty bold and yep i appreciate I, I appreciate that roast okay when you're making coffee at home what do you what are you doing with it um i'm i'm a big fan of of the death wish coffee um it's bold and it does the job <laughs> death wish coffee okay i love asking you know one of the things is um i used to work in the olympia area so i, I know olympia reasonably well it's been five seven years since i've been there but you know it is a worker yeah where's a great place to go get lunch that area there is um there's an indian restaurant that's down by uh, my favorite bar the brotherhood uh, i believe it's called great cuisine of india and they have a really awesome lunch buffet okay one of the things that most a lot i'll start that over anyone who's living in olympia will let you know that there are many places to eat which is good but the downside to this is many of these businesses are frequently turning over so i would almost wager that like most of the restaurants or a great number of the restaurants that you were familiar with seven years ago might not be there right no that's that was not surprising as a musician and now this is gonna i'm gonna you know this is a two-part question as a performer as a musician where's the coolest place that you've played Showbox at the market in Seattle. Um, that, that stage is like thunder. Um, and there's so much, there's so much magic on that stage too. Like knowing who sort of like that, that comment I made about just standing in, in hallowed Mm -hmm. ground. Right. Right. Um, when you're, when you're on stage, um, at a place like the Showbox or the central saloon in pioneer square. Oh yeah. Um, the, (laughs) <laughs> sort of the mystery um of of who's been there before you okay. you know um actually you know, it's funny i ended up i was working with a gentleman probably 15 no like yeah let's say 15 15 years ago and was telling him that i was playing a show at the at, at the central saloon in pioneer square and it turns out he had played that he had played that uh venue with a jazz group um 30 years back and uh, imagining that he was on that same stage playing a clarinet yeah. um, while I was out there trying to burn the building down, you know, with, with, with a heavy rock group. <laughs> it's right. it's kind of weird. Part two of that question is mm-hmm. where would you like to play that you haven't played? I would like to play. Um, I would like to go back to El Corazon and 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 play at El Corazon. I I guess that's all that was also called the Graceland. I think it was called the off ramp too. I could be wrong there. Yep. Um it's like for Seattle venues, it's kind of the perfect blend between big venue and intimate. It, it's it's sort of like the whiskey a go go. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And aside from that one stupid pole that blocks the view on the, st- on the stage, um, to me, it's it's the perfect venue in Seattle. Um, if it were still around, I would say the Rock Candy. Um, oh, the first the first rock show that I ever went to, um, 
was seeing Sleater Kenny at the Rock Candy in the mid nineties. And, um, and then of course it was soon demolished and condos replaced it. But, um, yeah, I, I would love to resurrect that place. Okay. Where's the best place to see music being performed? In Olympia, I would say the, um, I like the fourth Ave Tav when they were doing a lot of music. Uh, they've got a good, good separate. They've got a, a dedicated performance space behind behind the the bar and the pool tables and whatnot. Okay, played there a couple times. Yeah, three or four times I've played at the Fourth Ave, and and of course, like most smaller venues, it all depends on the sound guy, who's the sound person who's running right. that night. Um, but if you if you've got the right combination, it can be a a great venue. Okay, I love I love asking musicians like where. Your answers, there's a couple overlaps. Sure. But for the most part, past guests, the number one venue to play at or to see music at is the Triple mm-hmm. Door in Seattle. Yeah. Everybody everybody gushes about the Triple Door. The Showbox at the Market, I'm glad you said the Market, not Showbox Soto, because Showbox Soto is a, not a great place. <laughs> Sorry, it's just, yeah. Just, no, I mean it's 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 just it's, a box. it fills a need, but it yeah. is not the market. But the market, the market's a a great, um, a great venue. The last show I saw there, I think I saw it was a it was a weird pairing. We went and saw X and mm-hmm. Squeeze. Okay, so I'm not quite sure how those two ended up on tour together, but um, it was an interesting evening. You know. It, I'm trying to remember. I think I've only seen one show at the Triple Door. I mean, it's it's a great. I don't think there's anything wrong with that answer. I think that it really depends on what type of show are you playing, right? right. You know, um, if I am if I'm sitting down with a jazz group, if I'm or or playing blues or something like that, you know, um, yeah, it's a that would, I would love to, I would love to play it no matter what. But right. if I'm wanting to see people get sweaty and run into people and really just throw out that that rock and roll vibe, um, then I'm going to want something that offers a little more free space, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, the other thing, you know, tri- triple door is a good, a good answer. <laughs> but the other thing that I always expected, like when I throw out, like, where do you want to play question? Yeah. I really expected more people to say the gorge. I just, you know, you know I mean, like I've always, cause it's a, it's a cool venue. It's, it's, really yeah. large and I think I think for me I've always just been more of a small to medium sized venue kind sure. of person I want to don't get me wrong I would go play of course but a, a giant a giant stadium um or or feel like that but there's something incredibly powerful about being able to connect i mean how do you feel about the show when you're when you're so far back that you can be like well i can hear them but i can't see them you know and and i want i want the people at that show to all have this amazing intimate experience and i feel like once you get to a certain size that that's just not offered anymore other than like bragging rights to say well i i went there and i saw them well you did well, but did you? Because I wanted to go see right. the Stones, 
Right. And my goal, if I was going to go see the Stones, was that I wanted to see them. I didn't want to watch them on the Jumbotron. Right, exactly. And I, my and point. it's like, so I needed to be close enough that the Jumbotrons wouldn't catch my eye because I would be easily distracted and go, oh, look, Mick's 17 feet tall now. Um, yeah. And, and then, you know, but I think, I think the tickets were three grand a pop at that point to get, you know, close enough that it was not going to be, you know, Jumbotron. Right. And, uh, we didn't make that happen. And now that Charlie's no longer with us, I, I don't want to see, yeah, I, seeing the stones would be, it wouldn't be the same. So, um, I like the small venues too. Have you had anyone, um, now that you've got me thinking about this, now I have like five other things that I want to, that I, that I'd like to play, but I would love to play the, the sky church at the, at the <gasps> Mopop. Yeah. Or I, I will never not call it the EMP. Oh, that's it's the EMP. It Come on. You're, you're, <laughs> it's you're the EMP. company. It's the yeah. EMP. Uh, no, that'd be um, a cool venue. I, it's it's such a trip, you know, and it's an unsuspecting space. Um, yeah, no, that'd be a great but venue. Like, I, I've seen a couple. I, I saw Alien Ant Farm for the first time at, at EMP, and I'm going to be one of those guys to say I 100% love Alien Ant Farm, and it's not for that Michael Jackson cover, but they're just a damn good performing band. Okay. Um, and yeah, I remember I saw them in 2001 when they were there opening for Lifehouse and no one knew who Alienate Farm was. Right. Um, but it was, I think that counts as one of those smaller venues, but there's so much technology behind it. You're going to get a hell of a show there. <laughs> All right. That works. That works. No, I mean, there's some great places. I, I, you know, when I lived in the greater Seattle area, we used to go to the tractor all the time mm -hmm. and it's not laid out very well. It's not, but I loved going to shows at the tractor. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, it's a, that was just kind of a fun place to go or going yeah. way back in the day, like in the eighties, the, the, uh, the Ballard firehouse or the, or the underground were, I played the Ballard firehouse once. I loved it. Yeah. I wasn't 20, I wasn't 21 yet. So they made me stay in a very certain, very specific place. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was some guy on stage before we played that meowed like a cat he got up on stage with an acoustic guitar and just kind of meowed and played guitar and I'm like he's gonna make everyone leave before we even get on stage that's wild but see you, yeah. you're too young you missed maybe the coolest venue of all though was 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 in ellensburg the ranch tavern the ranch tavern was okay this, where, where was that it was east of town as you drove through town mm -hmm. um you went up past the water the water tank Mm -hmm. up there and it was just this old Quonset hut but it had like don't quote me on this but something like the largest spring-loaded hardwood dance floor on the west coast so i bet that the, was popular during the rodeo it, it was yeah because during the rodeo they bring country bands in exactly but the rest of the time it was it was um rock and roll bands coming through and um i Lots of famous names have played there at one time or another, right? And uh, cool. and it burned down in like '86, but um, and it wasn't a nice place, and it wasn't comfortable. <laughs> but yeah. it was when you packed 700 people in there of college age, in a in a, moving, in, a, in, right? in a in a town that was starved for music at that time. Yeah, right. it was a fun. It was a fun place. <laughs> it <was a> really <laughs> cool. Yeah, so, that sounds that sounds like a blast. Yeah, it really was. Um, so my last question for you is just my get out of jail free question. Sure. What didn't we talk about that we should have talked about? 
that's the interview question. When you go in for a job, what are your questions of us? I didn't expect to get that today. What should we have <laughs> talked about that we didn't talk about? Once again, I'm glad this isn't live. Well, it's, we're not going to edit out a whole lot of it here, folks. So it's, yeah, we're oh, going to listen oh, to you. Okay. We're going to let, let you just pause. No, the, the point here is simply is that did, did we not cover something that you would like to have made sure we brought up? Yeah, actually. Um, so I've had one, one of the things when you're launching a business is you've got a, that you don't necessarily see coming at you when you're thinking about how I want to build guitars, how I want to repair guitars and how I want to network with musicians. One of the things that I never saw coming was that there would have to be this apparel component. Um, oh, okay. I didn't think I was ever, I was ever, what's that? I, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted a way to be able to, at first I thought, well, it'd be cool to have some shirts. And so I may have uh, a few shirts that said Andorian guitar works on it. And that was cool. Um, Except, are you really going to wear a, a guitar short, a guitar store shirt if you, like, this is this is for somebody who's gotten the work done and they might want a t-shirt to go along with it. And that's cool. But one of the things that I really wanted to do with this business was really evangelize the mindset of, I don't care if you're a guitar player or whether you, you know, hiking is your passion or whether you like working on cars um, I said, I want my business to echo a mindset that can relate with anybody. And so I came, I sat down with my tablet and started coming up with different ideas. And that's how I came up with this mm-hmm. fret less rock more. So it's music punny, but it's really the idea of just like stop worrying and start doing. Mm. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, a little plug I've got, I got hats and shirts and all that stuff with it. But what's cool for me is that. I've watched people order these things that have never met me. They will never spend a dime in my shop. You know, maybe they'll order a guitar, maybe they'll order a guitar someday. Um, but they're not coming to me from Fort Wayne, Indiana to to put in a new pickup in their telly. But they love they love the hat. They love the logo. They love what it says about life. Okay. Um, so it's in the trademarking process right now, which I probably should have done before I started selling the stuff. But you know, that's if you ever see a social media post of mine, that's how I sign it off. Fret less, rock more. Because quite honestly, that's, to me, that's what life takes. I think we can close on that because I don't think we can do any better. <laughs> that's, Scott, that's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm I'm really sorry about my unstable internet connection out here. We'll, we'll have, if somebody's made it this far, they'll know that we patched it all together and it's all good. It's all good. So Matt, thanks for taking the time to be here today. Absolutely. Thank you, Scott. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.